You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Pause on the Play. As always, it is amazing to see you here where you're challenged to examine your beliefs, question your predisposed notions, and consider realities you may have been unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, here to get the dialogue going. So I haven't had any episodes by myself for a while because I don't like talking to myself. And I do very well with conversation. And so um, you hear a lot with India and I, but I, again, like to be able to have guests sometimes so that you can get some additional pieces of dialogue and you're able to kind of get some context because I think that the conversation piece is extremely necessary for reconsidering your normal and stepping out of your bubble. And so I have brought somebody that I hold in very high regard. Um, And this woman, first of all, she does amazing things. And I love what she does because, you know, my particular allyship, which I've talked about um, for the LGBTQ community, um, she partially serves that, um, that demographic, but also just the space that she holds for being of support is a powerful thing. And so I am going to introduce you to Kelly Manzano, and I'm going to start by letting Kelly tell you about who she is. Hello, ma'am. Hello. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It is always a pleasure and a privilege to have good conversation with someone who can hold space for people like me to talk about you know, what it means to show up and be an imperfect ally. Um, we met through, um, India and, um, you know, just have had great conversations both, um, in and out of, uh, the pause on the play community and, and just wherever you find cool boss ladies trying to do their best work in the world. Pretty much, pretty much. So tell everybody a little bit about what you do and, Um, the beautiful thing is, you know, you talked about the allyship piece and I think, um, you know, your allyship actually shows up in a number of ways of not only how you kind of navigate things professionally, but even personally, like you, you really do show up powerfully in that way. So share a little bit about that. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm a mental health, uh, a clinical, uh, a licensed clinical social worker in West Virginia. And so my primary practice is doing therapy with individuals And um, I also teach at my alma mater and do some training for um, local health organizations. uh, So that's important to me too. Um, But what seems to, uh, what came up for me pretty quickly into going into private practice was a a large subsection of young adults and teens uh, would come into the office talking about uh, identifying as trans or questioning their gender and so really quickly, it, it had always been an interest area of mine. Um, so I'd always, you know, if I saw a news article or um, a quick training, because um, there weren't very many uh, in-depth trainings about this topic offered um, in my area, um, I, w- I would take it and be really interested, but I wouldn't really have much use for it in my former practice. And so being able to actually use those skills and approach this population with curiosity and openness, it just really opened up a whole 
you know, new perspective for me and one that I really enjoy working with and I hope I can really show up fully and serve. Amazing. I know that um, there's the interesting thing is right, right now, you know, at the time of recording, we are all still in the middle of this shit show called COVID-19 <laughs> right now. Um, yes. We got and, 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 uh, no. And sadly it looks like we are on a fast track to being locked down again at the rate things are going. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing that um, I, I think maybe is kind of getting swallowed up in what's happening is the fact that uh, the movement and, you know, the things that people are still having to navigate in life, whether it's, you know, their own personal movement or just the collective movement that we're seeing, not just Black Lives Matters, uh, not just Black Trans Lives Matters, but just as a whole, seeing our own modern day civil rights movement in some ways. Um, and that is not in any stretch to minimize that, but to say that this is looking strangely mm-hmm. familiar to what we, we, how we saw that um, play out and, you know, what we know about it. And those things didn't stop. They're not put on hold. You know, the murder of George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, Nina Pop, uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, like these things that are sparking the social outrage that we're watching play out in front of us. None of these things stopped mm-hmm. when COVID decided to come and just like squatting everybody's living room so i think that it's important to acknowledge um the necessity for mental health right now being that i don't know that everyone is prioritizing it Mm. agreed yeah what i've seen i don't know i just get this sense that things generally speaking in the most general of terms, and I'm absolutely an imperfect ally when I show up for this conversation. But it seems like a lot of things online have gone back to status quo, or some things in the media have gone back to status quo. And that is deeply disturbing to me. Just Tell me next a little bit level more. disturbing. Let's well, talk, let's dig into that. So I ha- so part of this is might be just my personal perception and that I've taken a step back from being a consumer of media and just doing the damn thing. Like just trying to mm-hmm. find a place to dig in and just do some work because that's how I manage that sense of powerlessness or manage that sense of, you know, just wrongness and unfairness and cruelty is to get in there and show some love and show some service and show some gratitude. And so maybe I'm seeing less because I'm intentionally turning those things off, like the Mm -hmm. unhealthy media streams. Um, But I've noticed that even in some of the communities that I'm in online, um, having really open conversations with clients, um, things have kind of quieted for me. And like I said, for me, that quiet is very uneasy. It's very deceptive and it just feels It feels a little ominous, like a big dark cloud or a little malicious. Uh, Are you, do you get that sense as well? So the interesting thing is, okay, so I've noticed a few things. And what I've seen partially is that um, there's still a lot of people that want to do their work because they simply want to be better. And for that, I am grateful. Um, For those that are, are listening, learning and being in action, That's, you know, the most that I can ever ask for of anybody that is simply trying to make an impact and be better. Um, And at the same time, the challenge whenever, like when George Floyd was murdered, we saw this, saw and felt this very palpable, you know, pulse just shoot through the roof. And... The scary part of that, I can say um, for myself as a black person, I'm not going to speak for every black person, but in a lot of conversations that I've had with other um, people that look like me, there is this piece of like, okay, you're upset now. And then what? What happens when that kind of goes away or, you know, the outrage isn't quite so loud. And so what I'm wondering right now is if the outrage is possibly quieting, 
-hmm. If this is the normal, it's the middle of the summer and people are trying to figure out, I don't know what the hell vacation is this year, but whatever that is. Um, (laughs) If it is the stress of uh, what is school going to look like come the fall? Like, I'm not sure what's what. And so it is a little bit challenging to figure out, are people just kind of going back? Are people not sure what to do? I do think there's a little bit of paralysis of kind of not knowing what to do. Mm-hmm. And I have definitely been getting some of these um, kind of messages of almost confusion of, I don't know what to do. I don't want to be callous and just go about selling my business like normal. And I can't live like I did the week of amplification and just constantly pushing um, black voices only. And so I think people right. are, reckoning with that um reconciliation of what's next but there is this question of okay is you know what what is happening kind of Mm -hmm. you know what's going on because the movement does not take a vacation you know we all have to take care of ourselves so i'm not saying that you can't take a vacation but (laughs) the need for action doesn't take a vacation definitely that's a powerful statement. And I think what you said about knowing that there's like a, a restlessness or kind of um, it's, it's like people are spitting out a little bit, you know, where we, we have this fear response or anger response. And if we have nowhere to put that energy, we just kind of spin out like wheels in a car. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have a focus for that energy, you're right. It just kind of, it can either kind of go destructive or mm-hmm. it just, the energy just seeps out of it. So yeah, I've seen people just kind of maybe, I, I mean, this is external perception, right? The perception mm-hmm. is I, I see like either it just kind of left their perception or they, whether that was intentional or not, or you know, feel like, well, I gave voice to my opinion and that's enough. Like I've said my Mm -hmm. piece about it. And, you know, none of those are sustainable action and none of those continue to make progress in the future. But I I noticed, you know, when I (laughs) – when I get good and pissed off, like I've got to put that energy somewhere or else that can get really ugly for me. I don't like sitting with, um, that's really uncomfortable for me as a person. So I try to go to, um, oh, okay, what can I do about it? Like, Mm -hmm. what are my circles of influence where there's so many things that I can't change or can't solve, but where can I put the energy that I do have? How can I utilize the resources that are at my disposal? How can I, you know, reach through my network, whether it's my local community or online and try to get some motion towards something sustainable, some action. Um, because if I don't do that, then I don't feel like I've done enough. And I know I've spoken in the community a little bit about like, I wasn't even comfortable saying my response to the murders and to, um, you know, this just destruction in the the black community until I f- was settled in what I wanted to do about it. Then I felt like right. I found my voice. So that's so, a bit of what my initial thoughts are about what you shared. You, you mentioned something really important there that I find comes up a lot. And it's this feeling of like, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what to do. And some of it is a place of it, it's too big. It's unapproachable. Um, I, I, I feel kind of helpless with it. Like, I think all of those are kind of sentiments that, that are, you know, they're relative and they're there. Mm -hmm. But I think you mentioned something important, like what can I do where I am? You know, my circles of influence, you know, those that I know, what I have access to. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, it's so easy to get stuck in the, I can't do all the things, so I can't do any of the things. Mm. And that's, that's not helpful. That's essentially the type of defeatist mindset that perpetuates this continuing uh, generation after generation after generation. And so, I mean, I feel like there's a number of things that I, you know, hear you doing that are about action. So if you Mm -hmm. could, from your point of view, point out some of the actions that you think 
can be taken or are helpful as well as like, you know, just what you're doing, because I think that there's, there's power in the representation of what it can look like and the modeling of, you know, what you can do versus, oh, there's no way that I can, or I'm incapable or I'm unequipped, fill in the blank of a reason here to be still. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important point to note that I identify as a white person um, I do have some time that ties to the Hispanic community, and I can talk about that um, later. So it's like white with a little flavor. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I don't have direct ties to the black community, whether that's, you know, locally or, you know, uh, no family members or, or people in my immediate circle. Um, so it, it was interesting to be in that place and to be in an area where um, I think the national average of of people that identify as black is like 14%. Probably in our area, it's closer to about 9%, so lower than national average. Um, so it was interesting to be a white person and go, um, the, I want to do something about this. And I know from my social work education, whenever there's a movement and you're not a member of the movement per se, but you seek to support uh, social change, then you show up, you do the work and you shut up. Like in a nutshell, like that's mm-hmm. kind of what we're called to do. So I was looking for opportunities to do that. Like where can I lend my experience, knowledge and expertise to support? support the people who are being directly affected or to give them access to resources and tools that they need to advocate for themselves or to to be able to reach you know what they need and so um for me that looked like branching with uh, another social work colleague um who feels very strongly about this too and trying to see where some of our states um, breakdowns in policing are, and of course, and we're social workers who we're, we're training community organization and and interventions that promote social change, but we know nothing about policing. Like I did a little bit of work in um, criminal justice as a social worker, so I'm like I know how to show up to court and talk to police officers and things like that. Um, and uh, but that this is very different. So I thought, okay, well, this is what I know. What can I do? And so he and I reviewed the public information available for um, West Virginia's uh, state policing and their standards for training. And we learned that the education standards seemed low. And like I said, this is an outsider judging um, when I don't have all the information, but this is what getting in and doing the work looks like. You don't know what the heck you're doing when you start. You got to get in there and uncover some pieces and learn some things. So our initial observation was like, there's not, there's a a little blurb about policing with minority populations. That's what it's called. And there's a little blurb about policing for mental health in our community. Uh, A man was murdered um, and he uh, was African-American, shot 20-some times, and oh um, he had – he was psychotic. It was a, a – he was in the midst of a mental health episode. So it, it, this was on my colleagues and my radar, and so we were looking at, okay, what is fair policing for people with mental health and addictions look like too because that's part of the conversation. Um And the one little um, training that was offered, I think it was four hours total in the whole state policing training curriculum online, which may be different in practice. um, That one little training was taught by a licensed clinical social worker, which is our credentials. So our crazy way of thinking is like, if not now, when? And if not us, then who? So So we're trying to become more involved in... Um, the community connecting with our local um, NAACP chapter and seeing, um, you know, in the wake of our own community tragedy, you know, what has already happened? Where is communication breaking down with the police? Where is there a lack of training? And what can we do to help? So that's been a, a long answer to a short question of like, what have I been doing? But if I can kind of highlight the bits of what I think anybody can do is, you know, just start, reach out to the people that you feel are being connected, ask them what they need. What do they need from you to show up and be an ally? And, um, you know, ask questions, 
you know, look a little bit more deeper, see and see what matches your skill set. Fortunately, what's happening now just so happens to match the skill set that um, me and my colleagues were trained in. I know that's not always the case, but if you're an artist, make protest art. You know, if you're a carpenter, um, build something, a platform for people to stand on so they can talk about their change points. So use your strengths and talents to amplify the message. So first of all, like there's a number of things <laughs> that are happening there. First of all, there was action. So first and foremost, you know, you took the time to kind of consider what it could look like and, you know, finding some options and you went to action and, you know, that was, that was reading, that was listening, that was having the conversations, that was seeing where your skill set fit the need and educating yourself because, where I think some people struggle is they go in and they're like, oh, I know what you need. And it's like, wait, no, you don't. Stop. <laughs> so you have Ooh, to. Yeah. Let's not. Like, let's just collective not that for yeah members of the majority. <laughs> don't go in assuming, you know, ask questions and be open to the responses. What they might need from from they, the people that are being directly affected in any given you know, social situation, in this case, black people, you know, do they need childcare so that they can protest? Do they need access to legal resources? Which is another thing that came up was there wasn't enough legal funds to bail out all the people arrested at a local protest. So me, you know, getting on the phone and calling places and asking if they have uh, a means to contribute to legal aid, like that's not something that I'd ever done before, but I'm capable of picking up a phone and I can figure it out. So the moral of the story is, yeah, you're not going to know, but ask questions, be open to the answers and problem solve and figure it out as best as you can. That's all anyone can do. Absolutely. And again, like you laid out what this can look like and you gave, you know, specific uh, examples of what it looked like for you. And the beauty of it is that this does not have to be the only way. And this is what I try to impress upon people. This is not about take this one prescriptive thing and go do this. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, what, what do you have? What can you do? Because I, I, I truly believe that activism wears a lot of hats. It, it has many faces and it's not about, it's only this one way, you know, so supporting change is, it does not have to go in this one specific route other than anti-racism. Like that's the only kind of must that mm -hmm. is there for the ride. But, you know, the way that you um, actually execute on that isn't about it has to be this or it has to be that. And I think that you're in a um, uniquely well-suited situation being that Again, mental health, there's not enough of that there. And what was interesting when you were talking about it was that, you know, you're going through and there's this one little blurb about, you know, policing the black community, or there's this one little blurb about mental health. And these are things that are not properly expanded on. Mm -hmm. And the, Absolutely. you know, from what I heard you say, it was just kind of this, you know, the entire you know, police force in this area is kind of, it's kind of boiled down to this, you know, almost one module given by this one, one or however many social workers that's supposed to facilitate this entire understanding. And I'm like, that is severely distilled and severely, mm -hmm. you know, minimized as, as compared to what really needs to happen, particularly when you're policing people um, within a community that you don't reflect and you don't actually uh, reside in. Yes. Yeah, that's what jumped out for my colleague and I too, is that that just seems grossly insufficient. Yes. And again, I know that this is, you know, um, presumptive. There's still a lot of pieces that I don't know. I've never been a police officer. I don't know these things. But if it's already a curriculum that um, welcomes and utilizes, you know, licensed social workers to guide those conversations or those trainings, then is there a shortage of curriculum? Like, do, does curriculum need to be written? Do there need to be more trainers? Um, so unfortunately, as you know, with any good kind of super sleuthing, the more questions you ask, the more questions come up. But mm -hmm. at least, you know, if nothing comes from this, if nothing changes, at least I will have contributed to the body of knowledge that we have about it, to the 
interventions that have been tried, at least I've given my voice and lent my support to local community members that are interfacing with the police and, and, um, you know, trying to bring about that structural change. So, you know, I don't have any grand ideas for what I can accomplish, but I more or less have the perspective perspective of why not try? Like what's the worst that could happen to, to just give it my best. Um, anything short of that is a disservice to, you know, the people that I serve and, and, um, to members of the black community. How can I, you know, look some of my colleagues or some of my clients in the face and say, oh, I believe in Black Lives Matter. Like I, I'm the type of person that I need to live that or else I don't feel comfortable saying that. Yes. Yes. And I think that, you know, first of all, like you said, you know, doing the action is, is the important thing because I think so many people are so focused on the outcome to a fault in that if they don't know that it's going to work or when they don't want to do it. And mm-hmm. that's, you, you can't approach it that way. You, you just can't. And, you know, again, if we look at civil rights alone, you know, if the freedom writer said, yeah, if this doesn't work, we're not going to do it. Well, guess what? No, <laughs> like no. it just wouldn't have happened. And so there's too many pieces of liberation that would not have happened if that, initial try was quantified based on whether or not it would succeed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's too often that people are so focused on that, that they're not even willing to try. And the reality is, is that this is, you know, it's a, it's a, this is not, you know, a sprint. It's a marathon. This is like a long thing and there's going to be some passing of the baton and there's going to be these points to where, you know, you're going to kind of, you know, tap out and pass it on to the next person to keep going, but it has to start and it can't be based on this is going to work. It's going to be, I can't do nothing. And so this is the current effort and mm-hmm. to continue evolving that. And, you know, if we use um, the trans community for the example here, the black trans community, any trans community, has this cognitive dissonance that can come up, which is a large part of why mental health is needed there. But Stonewall would not have happened if someone had not said, uh, yeah, I'm not doing this and decided to utilize that voice and to not (laughs) go softly. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the trans community does not have the space that it has now where, Black Trans Lives Matters is being um, is being censored in a way that it should have been long ago, but that mm-hmm. would not have happened had not um, other things happened previously to set the stage for it. And so I think that it's very necessary to acknowledge that the things that we are seeing are based on groundwork having been laid brick by brick by brick. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciated, you know, as an outsider, um, I really appreciated the kind of twist that Pride had this year, really focusing in on BIPOC people and their contribution to LGBTQ rights. Um, it, it was very helpful, like like I said, as an outsider, um, as a cis person, as a you know, heteronormative person to, to be made more aware of these stories. These stories are powerful. And, you know, it's so unfortunate that tragedies happen before uh, majority people uh, are, give it the time and attention that it truly deserves. Agreed. And so this is, you know, again, the fact that you really are an example of what allyship looks like because again allyship is about action it's it's not a static word and um i mean we've talked about what this is for you and Mm -hmm. the the strong part that always stands out for me when it comes to you and allyship is the fact that it's absolutely not based in you know the the semantics of you know I, I want the tag and I kind of want this name it's yours is much more about 
the action and in the, the the doing of something in order to continue moving forward. But there's a lot of listening there. And I think for some people, there's not enough of that. There's not enough, again, of, of asking questions and learning outside of what you currently know or currently um, think or believe about something. And there needs to be more opportunity for that. Mm-hmm. Here, here. You know, I wish that there were more um, listening projects in communities. Um, listening projects are things that cropped up on college campuses that were just basically like a guy sitting in a chair in a public place, or you know, or a girl, and saying like, come sit down with me, just talk to me about your problems. And, mm-hmm. you know, very informal, not mental health, but it was just a way of connecting to people meaningfully and, and hearing each other's stories. And, you know, I wish that there were more listening projects hosted between um, BIPOC people, specifically Black people right now, because one thing that I noticed in studying up on, you know, what makes uh, safe policing, because I've had to get educated on this topic, it was not an area of, of expertise of mine. So the more that I look it up, the more study support the more interaction between um, white officers and communities of color, um, the more safe policing practices get. Like that's a, it, whenever you have an opportunity to humanize the people that you're policing, um, you're going to have less instances of the types of, of prejudice that lead to these tragedies happening. So it's like, it's something as basic as having, you know, a block party or, you know, I've seen some places roll out, like have coffee with an officer, which is interesting. That's an, in- I don't know how successful <laughs> that is, you know, for like nine years of my career was spent with mandated um, mental health for folks that had criminal records. So I'm just trying to think of any one of my clients that had, you know, that were on probation or parole would volunteer to have coffee with an officer. I'm thinking, not. Yeah, but there's a playground that is down the hill. Um, in my neighborhood. And it is well known that, well, first of all, the, it's like so crowded. I don't know how anybody can play basketball. Um, but they have this one large basketball court, tons of kids, mostly, you know, um, young men and boys, um, that are out there. And there's almost always one officer playing and like plain clothes, but everybody knows he's an officer, but he's just out there playing basketball. And like, every time I think of, just person-to-person interactions, you know, off-duty interactions between officers and the communities they serve are always going to boost healthier policing practices. And so that's the kind of stuff that I, I, I'm after and that I'm asking questions about and that I would love to see in my own community because one day my kiddos are going to grow up and they, they're not black, but they will be white and Hispanic and people are going to have assumptions about them based on, you know, their color, their age. Um, and, you know, and I would want them to be policed by somebody who respects them and is willing to keep them safe. And it, that's part of the, um, you know, the, the, the only type of personal, if I could even say that connection that I feel towards the black community is, you know, hearing, um, an African American mother and about the talk. And I heard about this concept in college of the talk. And I say concept because I'm white and I'm privileged and, I didn't experience that growing up and I heard about it in a college classroom of all places and it just absolutely broke my heart. And I remember thinking, um, you know, waiting for my son to grow to see how brown he was going to be to see when I should have the talk with him. And that is such a privileged place to come from. And, you know, speaking, you know, to you as a mother, it's just like, how can I have an open and office conversation with you without respecting, you know, your humanity to parent and mother without those same fears? Like my husband's very dark and I have fears about him running. He's an avid runner and we live in, um, in, a by a city park. So, you know, it's like a, a middle, middle-class neighborhood, just average houses. Um, but a, a lot of people like to walk and run up and down. There's a lot of retirees. And every time he goes jogging, he wants to do it, you know, about when the sun goes down, when it's not so hot. And I've had a couple conversations with him, like, 
you know, you are an imposing dark brown man. You are, you know, I have concerns about you doing this and your safety, not other people's safety, because they're going to perceive you as a threat. And I hate to have that conversation openly and honestly with you, but it's true. And I don't want that for you. So if I can have, you know, so when I think of these situations and where, where is my personal investment for making the world a better place and looking at it a little bit differently, safe policing for all, you know, these are my brief glimmers of personal connection that I look to when I think about it in way too like academic or way too clinical terms. It's like, no, this is a, a person to person issue. So I know I've shared a lot and probably a lot <laughs> imperfectly. And I'm open no. to well, open to schooling. <laughs> well, but, but, but see, here's the thing. You talked about, you know, the humanization of it, the people as people, because I think that there's this place where if, if the compartmentalization of people as a cause is what has you doing this, then you're losing something. And so it's important to see people as people. And so, you know, when we talk in pause on the play, the community, we, and granted, this is me as, you know, one of, one of the two facilitators, but we really try to humanize things. We try to not make it so, you know, like I said in the beginning, just intellectualized to a fault or Mm -hmm. so like, oh yeah, just do this or just do that. Or, um, you know, like you, you have to humanize thing. It's not, you know, oh, you know, how do I, how do I create diversity or how do I, um, you know, how am I being more inclusive? Like insert statement here. It's not about, um, it's not about the, the quantification of numbers. Like sure. these are individuals, like these are people, these, you know, are, are people that have thoughts and feelings and emotions and, uh, families of origins and, and histories and, their own things that they're navigating. And so when you distill it down to just the actions and you're not actually acknowledging what has, what has gotten them to this point, what are the learned experiences that have conditioned them to feel the way that they feel and to perceive things the way that they do see people as humans and be aware of what perceptions are, even if you don't subscribe to them. You know, even if you don't think that the dark man running is a threat, then you still have to acknowledge that the world as a whole, and this is a blanket statement, but there's going to be a lot of people that do, you know, when it became, we have to wear masks and a lot of black men were like, uh, so now you want to make me farther look like a target. And for some people, they had a hard time understanding that. And it's like, but you don't know what it looks like to what it feels like to live, um, and already feel like a walking crime. Right. You know, before you've oh, even done so anything. Powerful. And so, like, I think that there's a lot of things there to be able to do better by starting with the humanization. I think the humanization is such an important part of of any support because you can't support someone if you don't first see them as human. Like, how, you, you, you don't, yes. you know, like, there are some people that do a better job at supporting animal rights than they do human rights. Mm. That it tweet that somebody tweet that please. <laughs> just, I, I, just blast that. I, that would make me I happy. Because honestly, and and this is somebody I am a serious dog lover, but I swear when it was the I'm gonna call it what it was the fuckery of Amy Cooper and you know Central Park against mm. Christian Cooper, it was like wait wait. Yes, she should not have been choking her dog. However, comma, there's a whole black man that she's trying to get killed in this park. Do we, did we, oh, Uh, what did you see first? And what did you continue to see? You know, I think both matter, but mm -hmm. like there is no dog ownership if there's no person to own the dog. Like people, people. Right. Like, Like, hold on, hold on. Like, you know, there's this, this place where sadly there are people that can, easier quantify animal rights than they can human rights because they're not understanding what human rights actually means and they think that it's it is this bigger scarier thing than what it is or it's somehow it's taking something away from them and it's like no it is you no longer deciding that an entire group of people are three-fifths of a human each 
it's just incredible. Just, our our yeah. our history is, and not in a good way. Like it's just, it it is mind blowing. It's absolutely mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very much of the belief that if it didn't come through with what I've already shared, that if one of us doesn't feel safe, then all of us aren't safe. Like for me, it might be a sense of safety as a white person, but that pales in comparison to actual threats of safety, like emotional safety, physical safety, totally different things. Like we can't even start to talk about emotional safety until we've been able to grant a reasonable amount of physical safety for everyone. So, you know, if anybody questions me, like I shared with you before we started recording today, I was hoping to attend my first NAACP meeting and I was like, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. For some reason, I had this like weird fantasy in my mind that somebody was going to ask me why I was there as a white person. Like for some reason, that was the concern (laughs) that was popping in my head. There would be like why is this white girl here? Because being the white girl in a Hispanic family, I am not a stranger to sticking out like a strange thumb and going, yes, I happen to be the one white girl in a group of of people that look different than me. Um, but uh, my immediate response to that would be, well, you know, if, if you're not safe, then we're not safe. Like, we all mm-hmm. have to be safe here. Yes. Um, yeah. And speaking of public service announcement, white people can join the NAACP. I know that's, and I I say this because, and I don't, I'm in, in a season of ignorance. I know that not everybody agrees with or ascribes to the NAACP or not. Um, I'm learning a little bit about that organization's history too, but regardless, you know, I told, um, three people who were also white that, you know, I was joining and I'm not kidding. The first thing that they said to me back was, can you do that? Three people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, like, I don't know if that's just speaks to the, to the people that I interact with the most <laughs> or with the general ignorance. I don't know if that's a thing, but if it is, let it end here now. Anyone can join as long as you <laughs> identify with those principles. Is that a thing? Have you heard of that before? Of people saying like, can other Types of people doing, not just black people or people that identify as BIPOC. I think people as a whole just kind of feel like I can't join what I don't identify with. Mm-hmm. And if if there is nothing that has ever blown a hole in that, if you look at all of the protests that are currently happening and newsflash, they are still happening. The news does not have the rioting in order to make it newsworthy, but they're still right. happening. Right. Just FYI on that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of public service but, announcements today. Tune in. Tune right. in the more you Just know. Just saying. <laughs> and so I think, you know, when you're watching this, you're seeing that the majority of the people that are protesting aren't even um, Black, mm-hmm. which is powerful and what needs to happen. And so this is to remind you that you don't have to belong to a group to stand for equity. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just like that's a whole statement hard stop like Mm -hmm. if you believe in the equity of the support of the um expansion of of human rights and basic safety security and access at as as the bottom rung of of what you should have as a given like you don't have to belong to a group to support that Mm-hmm. If anything, it is it is in a lot of ways more powerful to not belong to that group because there's sadly this place of like, oh, I belong to this group. So you don't really hear me in the same way when someone that doesn't belong to that group speaks up. It's like, wait, this doesn't even affect them. And they said something. Maybe we should listen. Right. It's a whole nother issue, but it's true. That is. And I hate to keep circling back around to safe policing, but it's just so on the forefront of my mind and where kind of I'm centering my learning right now for obvious reasons. Um, But that's the second thing that jumped out at me when reviewing the research and listening to lectures about safe policing is that, uh, number one, those positive interactions in the community and with between police and community members. And two, when members of the majority speak out against racism on behalf of the minority that it's more powerful for that reason and because the repercussions are are most often less 
So they're Mm -hmm. more likely to be social repercussions if a member of the majority speaks out versus financial repercussions or, you know, physical safety repercussions of, you know, somebody of of color speaking up. So that's another thing that pushed me in that direction towards towards joining and towards, you know, feeling a little bit more okay being a white person without, you know, I say direct links, but what I mean are familial links um, and saying, yeah, like, I want to do this. This is really important to me and to my humanity to do something about this right now, whatever I can do. And so as we begin to wrap up, if there was anything that you could kind of share with anyone listening, if there was anything that you could support them with as an in, in, in action, um, you know, a, a thought of something to really contemplate to, to moving uh, forward with, is there anything that you could give as an imperfect ally to another imperfect ally? What would you share with them? I think the most powerful part for me was finding how I could put my experience, strengths, and talents to use for this purpose. I really feel like my voice followed once I found where where I might be able to contribute and help. So up until then, it was a lot of fear and anxiety and kind of grief and just a lot of really ugly heartbreak (laughs) and, you know, not really any place to put it. So if you're feeling heartbroken, if you're feeling like you haven't found, uh, you feel called to do something but haven't really found how, I want you to look towards your own skills, talents, your own networks, your own sense of community online or off, and see about how you can put those things to good use for this purpose and the fear will lessen, you know, your purpose will increase and you will have found a place where you can start to be a part of the solution. Like you said, it's, (laughs) this is for the long haul. You're probably starting a a relay race, like you mentioned earlier, where you're going to be passing this baton to somebody else. You probably won't see, um, you're not going to see the end of it, but you've got to start. And so if you're wondering about where, look to what you already do well, what people already respect about you, where you already feel competent and confident, start there. Absolutely. I agree 150% on that one. And so this is where, you know, just to kind of remind people, if you are looking for something else to do, or you're looking to not do this on your own, pause on the play, the community is going to give you a a room of like-minded individuals, yet not a room of Stepford people. Like we're not all the same. And <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's enough uniqueness there that everybody isn't going to approach things the same. The skill set is not the same. And just the things that people are processing um, along with their allyship and the desire to really do better and to make impact. Like that part being consistent is there. And it is an opportunity for you to work on what it looks like to be in action and, you know, what are the impacts that this can have on your business and how your business can can create um, additional equity in the small business space? How is it that what you do has the opportunity to begin to create access and equity in whatever the spaces that you inhabit and how can it collectively make a dent in, you know, the change that needs to happen and I'm very fortunate, you know, for Indy and I to have Kelly as a member in this room and, you know, her being able to bring her skill set and her point of view is extremely valuable. And anybody that wants to kind of see what that can look like, like I encourage you to go to pauseontheplay.com forward slash community and apply so that you can, you know, really come on into the room and begin to begin to just be in action today. If you have anything that you want to give to them, Kelly, being in the room, feel free. Yes. Well, I'd just love to add to that. You know, my experience with with India, having conversations with you, Erica, just seeing you really be the voice that we all needed to hear from during this crisis. I know at least in, in the rooms that I visit that more, you know, geared towards creative entrepreneurship, um, you know, it was just so reassuring to know, to know you personally and to trust you and to know that you were going to give people the, the 
message that they needed to hear with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and to give them safe spaces to be able to work out these things um, is just so powerful. So I wanted to say thank you for that and all the hard work that you've done throughout all this process. And um, yeah, I really appreciate that you and India build a community where I could sound some of these things out. Like in the process, that was the only space that I felt really comfortable besides my own, the four walls of my house, you know, talking through some of the things that I was feeling about what was going on and trying to figure out how I was going to take action. So I really appreciate, you know, having the firm but flexible support that <laughs> that you both provide. Um, yeah. And if anybody wants to um, connect with me or have questions or, or concerns, um, about mental health and and the Black community or mental health in um, uh, LGBTQ communities, you can find me at Summit, S-U-M-M-I-T, healthworks.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kelly. And thank you again for being a part of the community. And I'm, we're, we're happy to hold that space. And this is Absolutely. just you know, a, a piece of what we do to contribute to change. And Yes. Thank you. And yes, you need to go and connect with Kelly. Kelly, Kelly is amazing. So you do that. <laughs> um, and as always, you know, I love being able to have everyone show up here as a guest and as a listener, um, willing to have these real conversations, normalizing the challenging things, crossing lines, recreating boundaries, and showing up to support and not separate. Let's continue doing more, getting people drop, dropping the veil, challenging their thoughts, feelings, and actions. And until next time, bye. Ready to get clear on what matters? Let's do this. From implicit to explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace. Whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business, it can all completely change the game. Having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take and then sharing this information across your team explicitly. This is what creates confidence and integrity and what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?